Hello again, everyone, and welcome to Now We're Talking. I'm Rob Danish from the University of Waterloo, and this is a podcast about communication skills. So this is episode 85, and in the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about uh, reflective practice, communication as a reflective practice. And at first, I gave two really simple, very uh, discreet and easy communication practices that were versions of reflective practice. Uh, mirroring and emotional labeling. And then we talked about how generally to be responsive and non-reactive and how kind of unreflective communicators are reactive and reflective communicators are are responsive. Today, I want to talk about a slightly more complicated communication practice that is a kind of reflective practice and sort of combines leadership skills and skills of persuasion with this idea of reflective practice. And that has to do with what I call strategic questions um, and strategic questions. So, you know, all of us ask questions of other people all the time. How are you doing? You know, what's your day been like? Um, why did you pick that to as your cereal to eat in the morning? So we all ask questions of other people. We can ask questions very unreflectively, and those questions can not really do much for us or not really get us what we're interested in. Or we can ask reflective questions. And so reflective questions have an intentionality behind them to try and achieve a result that unreflective questions don't. And what I want to talk about today is how to ask questions more strategically and why you might want to do that. And I think I'll start with the, the why. Um, so strategic questions allow us to do to affect people in different kinds of ways than unreflective, unstrategic questions do. Um, all right, let, let me get at that by talking first about an extreme and ridiculous example and then a few simpler examples. But so imagine that um, your friend has been kidnapped by a drug dealer. The drug dealer has kidnapped your friend and is asking for a ransom. Uh, but you don't know what state your friend is in or how they're doing. And so the drug dealer calls you on the phone and says, I've kidnapped your friends. I'm going to kill them unless you give me a million dollars, or I'm going to uh, do harm to them unless you give me a, a whole bunch of money. Uh, it, normally for a long time, negotiators would use what were called proof of life questions. So, you know, what was the name of, the, of my friend's dog when they were growing up? So the kidnapper would have to ask the friend the name of the dog and then report it back to the, the negotiator or the police as they were investigating. But that's a crappy question because it's closed-ended. It has a definitive answer to it. Um, the better question, if your friend's been kidnapped, is how do I know my friend's okay? Uh, it's what I would call a strategic and reflective question because it turns the burden of, it turns the communicative labor onto the other other party. If you ask that of your kidnapper, the kidnapper has to think for a second, well, how do I do that work? Um, closed-ended questions. So this is the difference between what I would call a closed-ended question that has a single correct answer and an open-ended question that's strategically designed to force someone else to pause and reflectively think about what they're going to say in response. 
So you are, in, in essence, using a strategic question to force your interlocutor into the position of being a reflective practitioner of communication. And that is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do. Um, so the genius of that technique is well explained, I think, by um, in a book called Split Second Persuasion by a psychologist named Kevin Dunton. Um, in that book, Kevin Dunton talks about what he calls unbelief. And unbelief is this active resistance to what the other per what another person is saying. It's like a complete rejection of what the other person is, is saying. And whenever you have a conversation where there's a strong degree of unbelief, where one person outright rejects the other person's position, uh, you end up having kind of showdowns where each side is trying to impose its own point of view on the other. And you get essentially what I called in an earlier episode, push tactics of persuasion, two people, two forces pushing against one another. Um, now, the key to persuasion or the key to transforming beliefs in that situation is not to force the other person to adopt your point of view. It's to get the other person to drop their unbelief. So their kind of refusal to acknowledge your viewpoint. Um, so if you can get the other person to drop their unbelief, you can slowly work them to your point of view with their own energy. So with their own communicative labor, with their own reflective communicative practice. So you're not trying to directly persuade the other person to see your ideas. Instead, you're kind of drawing them to your ideas through their own reflection and through their own engagement with your questions. Um, so our job as persuaders is actually easier than, than we think. It's not to get other people believing what we have to say. It's getting them to stop them unbelieving or disbelieving. And if we achieve that, like we, we do a lot. That's like a huge achievement in our communicative practice. Because like what Dutton says is that unbelief is the friction that prevents persuasion. Um, without unbelief, there's no limit to what you can do. But when unbelief is there, it sticks. It, it, it prevents the, the communicative process from going forward. Um, so what you want to give your counterpart or your interlocutor in any conversation the illusion of control by asking a strategic question, essentially by asking for help. Uh, that's one of the most powerful tools for suspending unbelief. Uh, so a while back, I read an article in the New York Times by a medical student who was faced with a patient who had kind of ripped out his IV, packed his bags, was making it, was going to leave because his biopsy results were late and he was tired of waiting. And uh, the doctor, uh, the main doctor comes in, uh, asks the, the patient to just chat for a minute uh, you know, the, he says, like, I understand why you're annoyed. The lab's, you know, taking a long time. Um, but then the doctor asks a, cal asks a strategic question. Um, so what is so important that you need to leave now? Um, and the patient says, you know, I've got to run errands. Um, and the doctor then says, well, I can get you a service that will help run the errands for you. And the doctor the doctor's technique is that he kind of transformed what is a showdown of forces pushing against one another. I'm going to leave. You can't leave. No, I want to leave. The lab's taking too long. This is just how long, long labs take. And he asked a question instead that, that led the patient in a way that the patient could solve a problem 
could bring the problem to the forefront and solve that problem. It was, it's not a great, it's not a complicated task. It wasn't a great strategic question, but it was a kind of way of avoiding a showdown. Um, and it was a way for the doctor to give the patient some control, which often in a conflict or in a, in a process of persuasion, we do a lot when we get the other person to feel like they have some control over the situation. Uh, so that technique for suspending unbelief that you use, that you can use if someone's kidnapped your, your friend, um, or that you can use against, you know, or with escaping patients, that works in every communicative interaction. If you go into a store, um, instead of telling the sales clerk that you need something, you can describe what you're looking for and ask for suggestions. Um, and then like, let's say you've picked out what you want, what you want. Um, you can ask for help with um, one great question, like, this is, so maybe it's too expensive. So maybe you say, well, how am I supposed to afford that? You know, it's really great, but how am I supposed to afford that? The, the critical part of the approach is that you're asking for help. So a strategic question um, tries to mitigate unbelief by asking for help. And your delivery of the question has to convey that. Um, instead of like bullying or pushing the, the, the sales clerk, you're asking for their advice and giving them a sense of control. Asking for help in that kind of manner uh, after you've already been engaged in a dialogue or in a conversation of some point is really a powerful negotiating and, and communication tool for transforming encounters from confrontations into collaborative problem-solving exercises. So uh, strategic questions transform confrontation into collaboration. And that's really, really important and really valuable in communicative processes. Um, so, you know, this is slightly more complicated. Um, so uh, let's talk about a couple of examples of really simple uh, strategic questions. I think most of, um, most of them for me involve how or what. Um, so it's important to know that they're not just random requests for a comment. Um, so that means that they're not really, they don't really offer a target for attack like a statement does. Um, like, I'm not going to do that. You know, you're uh, taking unfair advantage of me. That's a statement that can be criticized. Instead of saying, how am I supposed to do So instead of saying, I'm not going to do that because that's really unfair. You've introduced uh, a statement or a claim that can be critiqued or resisted or pushed back against. So you replace that with a strategic question like, how am I supposed to do that? There's no statement that can be critiqued or pushed against. So the beauty of the strategic question uh, is the fact that they don't give you a target like this declarative sentence does or declarative statement does. Um, so they, they get out of the push tactics of persuasion that I was talking about a, a bunch of episodes ago. Um, so they're not just random uh, questions. They are reflective. Like you have to think about how to ask best so that you're transforming confrontation into collaboration so that you're mitigating unbelief and so that you're asking for help and getting the other person to be reflective about their interaction with you instead of pushing back against you. Uh, they also, I would say they also have a, a direction. 
you have to figure out where you want the conversation to go and then you design a question that will ease the conversation in that direction by letting the other person think it's his or her choice to take you in that direction. That's why I think they're strategic. You have to strategically think about what the next steps in the conversation will be and how the question might lead in that direction. So um, the, I think the good news is that there are uh, some offhanded, what I would call rules of thumb for doing that work. Uh, what are some of those rules of thumb? Well, I think strategic questions avoid verbs or words like can, is, are, do, or does. Uh, strategic questions that use those words tend to be closed-ended questions that can be answered with a simple yes or no. You know, can I, can I take your temperature? Yes, no. Uh, instead, they, instead I, I think a strategic question will start with a list of words, um, mostly their what and how. So almost all strategic questions start, fr from my perspective, with what and how because they inspire your interlocutor to think, to reflect, and then speak. Um, that means they're not why questions, they're not who, when, or where questions. Because who, what, so who, when, and where questions tend to have closed-ended responses, and why questions tend to make people defensive. So. You don't want someone defensive and you don't want someone in a closed-ended position of just offering a one-word answer. So how and what questions avoid those things? Sometimes why questions might work, uh, but mostly you want how and what questions. So, okay, you have two words to start with and then you avoid uh, some, some of those other verbs that I, I mentioned. Uh, you can do a lot with what and how strategic questions. So, you know, if you say, does this thing look like something you would like? That can be replaced with, how does this thing look to you? Um, you're, you know, when you're asking, does this thing look like something you would like, you could get yes, I would like it, no, I wouldn't, but how does this thing look to you would cause the person to pause, reflect, and then more expansively communicate. Um, even something as harsh as why did you do that, which puts someone on the defensive, can be strategically redesigned as what caused you to do that thing. That takes away some of the emotion, makes the question a little less accusatory, causes the person to reflect and think for a moment. So you, I, I think people should use strategic questions early and often in conversations. They, it, before conflict even happens or before any kind of tension emerges in a conversation. And often there are just a few that you'll find you can use in the beginning of nearly every situation. Um, so in any kind of conversation, you can always use these strategic questions and it gets the other side to tell you something reflectively meaningful about themselves and then the conversation can unfold in really positive ways. So here are the ones that I would use. Um, what about this that we're discussing is important to you? How can I help to make this better for us? Or how can I help you, period? Uh, this is something I ask my students all the time or anyone that comes into my office to complain about something. 
I say, well, how can I help? How can I make this better for you? Um, you can ask, how would you like me to proceed? What would you like me to do next? Um, you can ask, what's that? what is it that brought us into the current situation? How can we solve the problem together? What's the objective here? What are we trying to accomplish here? How am I supposed to do the thing you're asking me to do? So the implication of any kind of well-designed strategic question is that you want the other person, uh, you, you want what the other person wants, but you need his or her help to solve the problem. Uh, it, these, these questions are extraordinarily useful for very aggressive or egotistical people. Um, just like asking for help uh, from an egotistical people makes them really think that, you know, it feeds their ego essentially. Um, but even less egotistical people, you're triggering, uh, so here's the, the effect. I think that you're triggering goodwill and you're minimizing defensiveness with a strategic how or what question. So you get people feeling goodwill and you get people feeling less defensive. At the same time, you've engineered the situation in which your, your interlocutor now has to use their reflective communicative processes to overcome challenges that you've set for them. It's the first step in your interlocutor sort of internalizing your view of a situation and the obstacles in a situation from your view. Um, and it's the first step in, in guiding your interlocutor to designing a solution to a particular problem, a collaborative solution to a particular problem. Uh, so think, does that, that example of the doctor I used and the strategic question he used to get his patient to stay, the key to getting people to see things your way is not to confront them about their ideas. Like you, so you don't say if you're the doctor, you can't leave, but to acknowledge their ideas by saying, I understand, you know, you're angry and then guide them to solving their own problem. You know, what is accomplished when you leave? Like, what, what, what are you going to do when you leave? Well, I'm going to, I need to do my errands. Well, you know, are there other solutions to doing, to getting your errands done? So, you know, in the communicative process, if you're going to be persuasive, it's often better to give the illusion of control to the other side. And that's one of the other effects of strategic questions. They make your interlocutor feel like they're in charge of a situation. But it's really you who are framing the conversation through your question. And your interlocutor won't really have much idea how constrained they are by your questions because all of a sudden they're reflecting inside your worldview, essentially. Um, so I think that, um, you know, the, a reflective, so a strategic question is for me a kind of advanced reflective communication practice, like emotional labeling, like mirroring, um, which are reflective communication practices of listening. This is a reflective communication practice of asking. So instead of unreflectively asking questions, and when we do that, we often ask closed-ended questions that have one word or simple responses. We, we strategically design our questions with how or what in the front that are open-ended, that cause people to pause, think through their response, frame their response in the light of the, the, the situation as we've defined it, and then they begin to feel less defensive more invested with more goodwill toward you and more invested in collaborative problem solving.
Um, so strategic questions are a great way to avoid conflict, engage in collaboration, yet frame entire conversations on your terms. Um, so in my view, they're a kind of advanced reflective practice, more advanced than mirroring at least, or than, uh, than emotional labeling. And they're always good in all situations, uh, but most particularly they're good in, in situations where there's high degree of conflict or high degree of tension or uh, disagreements between opposing parties. Okay, so um, that's another reflective communication practice you could put in your uh, bag of communication tricks or your bag of communication competencies, if you will. Um, all right, so that's it for episode uh, 84 of Now We're Talking. I'll be back shortly with another new episode and another communication practice. Thanks, everyone, for listening.